Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guests today are writers Morgan Thomas and Claire Lucchetti. Morgan Thomas earned their MFA in 2016 from the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Afterward, they went to Mongolia as a Fulbright Fellow. Thomas was the 2022 recipient of Lambda Literary's Judith Markowitz Award for Exceptional New LGBTQ Plus Writers and has also received support from the Breadloaf Writers Conference and a Southern Studies Fellowship in Arts and Letters. Thomas's work has appeared in The Atlantic, American Short Fiction, The Kenyan Review, and elsewhere. Thomas's debut collection, Manywhere Stories, published in 2022, was a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize, Lambda Literary's Transgender Fiction Prize, the LA Times Art Seidenbaum Award for First Fiction, and Publishing Triangle's Edmund White Award for Debut Fiction. They are currently a Shearing Fellow at the Black Mountain Institute at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Claire Lucchetti earned their MFA in 2017 from the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. They are an Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at Binghamton University in New York. Lucchetti was a 2022-23 Rona Jaffe Fellow at the Dorothy and Lewis B. Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers at the New York Public Library. They've received grants and support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing, McDowell, Yaddo, and the James Merrill House, among others. Lucchetti's fiction and nonfiction has appeared in Best American Short Stories, VQR, Plowshares, The New York Times, Granta, Kenyon Review, Glimmer Train, Iowa Review, and Indiana Review. Their novel, Agatha of Little Neon, was published in 2021. Thomas and Lucchetti gave readings at the U of O on January 10th, 2024, as guests of the Creative Writing Program. Thank you both for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. So you, you each earned an MFA, as I said, uh, from Creative Writing at U of O. Looking back, how did your graduate experience impact your identity and practice as writers? I can go first. Um, the University of Oregon MFA was the first time that I thought of myself as a writer in a really serious way. I studied biology primarily as an undergraduate, and it wasn't until I got to the MFA program that I realized it was possible to be a writer professionally and started to take that practice really seriously. And so I think in that sense, the time that I spent at the University of Oregon was really formative. And it also introduced me to a community of writers, both faculty and fellow MFA students, who still help me to read and edit my work and challenge my ideas about fiction and craft, and I feel very grateful for that community. Yeah, the community um, aspect of the MFA program was wonderful, and the time to write, um, I think, went a long way in helping me develop the confidence to, as Morgan say, said, call myself a writer. Um, and I think it helped me understand how long a game it is to write and how, um, how much permission you have to give yourself to revise, which is really just another way of saying um, changing your mind. And that has been a really um, beautiful takeaway for me, not just in writing, but um, in general in life. Hmm, interesting. So Morgan, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a writer. Yeah, so as I mentioned, I was 
have always been um, really interested in science and biology, and it wasn't until I uh, started the MFA that I really thought about myself as a writer. Um, however, I've always written stories um, and poems ever since I was a very young child. It's been a way for me of asking questions in a sustained way and considering the world around me and the parts of it that I don't understand. Uh, and I, I think that tool was really useful for me, um, yeah, all, for all of my life. And so it felt like, in some ways, from a subject matter standpoint, a real sort of diversion from the path that I had thought I would take in biology when I decided to do the MFA. But I think at the same time, it was really a continuation of this like way of approaching the world um, and writing being such a part of that. Say a little bit about your background. Where are you from? Oh, sure. I'm from, uh, I grew up, I was born in Arkansas, in Little Rock, Arkansas. I lived there until I was 10. Uh, and then I moved to Gulf Breeze, Florida, which is just outside Pensacola, um, in the northwest part of Florida, and lived there and went to college in Florida as well. So all the stories in the volume, well, almost all the stories in the volume take place in the southern part of the U.S., in the Gulf Coast area. Do you think of yourself as a Southern writer? I mean, I know you live in Portland. Do you think of yourself as a Southern writer? Yeah, I'm not sure, honestly. I think that anytime I sit down to write, I tend to find myself back in the South, even though I'm not living there currently. That landscape is very much a part of me and I think a part of my stories. Uh, and I also think that one of the things that I was trying to do in Manywhere um, and that I'm still thinking about as I write fiction is to sort of find a place for myself as a genderqueer person in the sort of mythos of the, the South. I think there are like, there are myths that the South tells about itself, that it's a place where neighborliness overcomes bigotry or that it's a place that has like itself overcome histories of genocide and slavery. And I think those are, those are myths. And then there are also myths that the rest of the country tells about the South. I think Jasmine Ward speaks really beautifully about this when she says, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that Mississippi is like the place that people point to when they don't want to notice the racism that's happening where they are living. Um, and I think like both of those, I sort of hold both of those sets of, of myths and, and then try in my fiction to like, imagine a place where I, as a, a settler who's genderqueer, can, can find like a, a life in the, in the South that feels both ethical and joyful. And so I think in that sense, my work does feel like it's engaging with, uh, with Southernness, especially this book, Manywhere. But I also, yeah, I'm not living there currently. And so I do feel tentative about like claiming any sort of broader label about myself as a writer. Perfectly understandable. Um, would you read us a passage from the book? Sure, happily. I'll just read from the beginning. Uh, the story is called Taylor Johnson's Lightning Man. October 2008. I'm here in the photo booth on Ellis Island, waiting for you, Lightning Man. You're sailing from London on the ocean liner New York. Your ship docks in one hour, 100 years ago. We'll miss each other by a century, I know. It doesn't matter to me. I'm here anyway, waiting. I have something to tell you. After you disembark, follow signs to the gift shop. I'm on the first floor, near the water fountains, past the ladies. Make a right at the elevator. The medical ward where you spent most of your time on the island is closed to visitors now. The room where you argued your case before the board of special inquiry is locked, visible only through glass windows. 
But the site where you had your photograph taken on Ellis Island is open to tourists, marked by a photo booth. There is still one camera on Ellis Island, and I'm sitting in front of it. I'll meet you here. I'm wearing a Hamburg with a stiff brim and a suit just like yours. The tourists mistake me for a living exhibit, a reenactor. Who are you, they ask me. I tell them to guess. I came up on the train, two days spent on the rails you once rode the other way. This morning I told my mother I was taking a ferry to Ellis Island. She said we didn't come through that way, it was Canal Street for us. I know, I said. There's no one up there for you, she said, hanging up. But I haven't come looking for family. I've come to meet you, Lightning Man. As this is the lightning rod season, it is the opportune time to put the homeowner on his guard against the wiles of one lightning rod man who is now going his rounds in the lower wards, equipped with a reel of twisted white ribbon, some alleged insulators, a few gilded points and spikes, and an enormous quantity of impudent loquacity. From the Louisiana Electrical Review, January 30th, 1909. You protected us from fires. My mother invoked you when the weather turned, when hard rain shorted our window units, when jellyfish sucked up into Gulf Power's turbines fried the circuitry and we lived for days in the dark, when the generator at the corner of Lee and Empire blew, when the neighbor girl dropped her hair dryer into the kitchen sink and the surge protectors tripped one after another down the row of flats, my mother said, where's that lightning man? When a storm tracked off the gulf to New Orleans, she didn't call on Jesus. She clasped her hands in front of the standing fan and she said, hear us, lightning man. We climbed into the bathtub, put the mattress there on top and hunched against it for breathing room. We listened to shingles pull away from the roof, to the trees outside popping like cans, to the Kesey family next door singing Hosanna crammed into their tub, same as us. We said, come on, lightning man, knock at our door, lightning man, keep us safe, lightning man, we're calling you. After, in the giddy, permissive days following any storm, I used bungee cords for jump ropes. I skipped with the other kids, singing, Lightning Man, Lightning Man, where's your rod? We tapped Coast Guardsmen on the shoulder to whisper the question and ran, shrieking. We couldn't have said why it was funny, but we were certain it was. We made our own lightning rods. We lashed coat hangers to the gutter. We tied Christmas ornaments to brooms with butcher's twine and dangled them out windows. If the ornament twisted left, a storm was coming. If it twisted right, our mamas were. We all knew your story. We'd heard it from our mothers over dinners of macaroni eaten before the standing fans. The year was 1920. You appeared in a thunderstorm on the porch of the landlord's flat. You held a staff of iron from which hung a crystal ball, the sort used for divination. You knocked. The landlord mistook your knocking for thunder. Perhaps your knocking was thunder. You let the thunder do your knocking for you. You sold lightning rods, iron rods, a dollar a foot, the glass balls you'd throw in free. Four rods would cover the flats, protect them from lightning fires, 40 feet of iron, $40. The landlord refused. The landlord was warded, pimpled, bespectacled, every kind of ugly. The landlord was tight as a mule's ass with his money. 
One year later, the flats caught fire. Inside, 24 people, women and children, four rods would have covered the flats, $40. Most ended the story there with a suck of air through their teeth, one shake of the head. We may be stingy, but we aren't cheap. Not my mother. My mother went on. You died in 1932, she said. You were entombed in St. Louis Cemetery No. 3, east of New Orleans. The undertaker, when he stripped your body for embalming, discovered you had been all along a woman costumed with a man's suit and a smoker's cough, a Canadian with no U.S. citizenship and no family to speak of. My mother liked your story because she thought it illustrated the progress made by women of her generation. These days, you wouldn't have to hide that way. You could sell a lightning rod wearing a skirt, might sell more. I liked your story because I suspected even then you weren't a woman or a man. You were a lightning man with a knock like thunder. I felt close to you. Thank you so much. Uh, as that story suggests, you've done some historical research in writing these stories. So say a little bit about that research and how it impacted the writing of the stories. Yeah, um, so all of these stories were written as I was seeking in the archives the genderqueer community that at the, that time I hadn't found around me and I felt really uh, rejuvenated and excited by the idea that these, that these people had lived full lives centuries ago and I, and I saw in them like queerness or transness or the possibilities of it. Um, and I wanted to write into that because I felt this connection. And I think you ask how it impacts the stories. I think the answer to that is that as I started to write the stories and write into that perceived connection, I realized how fraught it was. I realized that I couldn't actually impose a label like queer or genderqueer on Frank Woodhull, who lived in 1908, well before modern queer discourse emerged. And a lot of uh, the craft choices that I made in these stories had to do with my attempt to navigate that difficulty and that sense of like both wanting to claim this, this kinship, this connection, and also recognizing that that desire was mine and was almost certainly a distortion of of history and that these are stories that have already been distorted through secondary sources in a whole variety of ways and that I was sort of seeking yet another um, distortion for myself from, from these, these historical characters. That's very interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about why you gave the volume that title, Manywhere? Yes, this was actually a collaboration with my editor um, who, who suggested it. and. I think it suggests like, expansiveness and possibility, which are two things that I, I hope the stories are sort of building towards. It's the title of the last story, which I think is the one in which that expansiveness and possibility like, is sort of most uh, recognized at the very end. Uh, and so it fits in that sense. And the only other thing that I like to say about it is that I thought I had made it up, but then I found <laughs> it in Urban Dictionary and I was like, oh, this is a word that already exists. So. <laughs> I thought you'd made it up too, wow. Um, you're, these are short stories. Yeah. What are some of the challenges of writing short stories as opposed to writing a novel or other kinds of writing? Uh, I mean, I suppose compression is the challenge, but I love the short form. I find it much more difficult to write a sustained like long form novel. Um, I think that the beauty of a short story is that everything is like, and in many of my stories is sort of pivoting around one central point, moment, turn, realization, however ephemeral or incorrect. Uh, 
and that is just yeah it, it like works so well I think for the stories that I want to tell and especially in this book when what part of what I wanted to do was just to show a diversity of, of southern queer and genderqueer lives uh, and so I think having these multiple stories in one collection to do that felt like the right the right choice um, and I think my last question for you is uh, to tell us a little bit about this fellowship you had at the Black Mountain Institute. Yeah, I last semester I was a shearing fellowship at the Black Mountain Institute, which is a nonprofit that is affiliated with the University of Nevada in Las Vegas, uh, and it was a wonderful experience. I did a little bit of teaching, a community workshop um, that was really incredible, focused on writing queer and trans ecologies and thinking about ecological storytelling. Um, I was able to do a bit of research in the archives at the University of Nevada there and felt so supported by the Black Mountain Institute staff. So it was a really wonderful opportunity. Cool. So Claire, we're turning to you now. So tell us a bit about your background and how you came to be a writer. Yeah, I, um, in terms of where I'm from, that question gets harder and harder to answer as I grow um, and age, but I was born in upstate New York, uh, lived in Cincinnati for some of my childhood, and then we moved to Chicago. Um, and then I have like bounced around for the past 11 million years. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think my, uh, my journey to the writing world um, was a little bit, it, I don't know, it, it never felt it still doesn't feel to me like I'm um, choosing a career. Uh, instead, it's like choosing how to spend my time and what to pay attention to. Um, I was living in New York after college and working as an administrative assistant and found that I really loved writing emails, of all things. <laughs> um, and I wasn't really sure what to do with myself and, and how to like build a future for myself. Um, but I thought that it was good information that I knew that I liked to write emails. Um, and so I wondered how I could <laughs> keep writing emails um, and, and then write um, you know, stories and, and um, and other things too. So I um, applied to the MFA program here and um, it was just a really wonderful way to spend two years writing and, and learning and, um, and making friends. And um, I, I think I can say with confidence, no one has ever told me they became a writer because they liked writing emails before. <laughs> I know, it was freaky. I mean, so much of the job was terrible that <laughs> <laughs> emails were a relief. So would you read a passage from uh, Agatha Little Neon? So I'll read from the very first chapter. Mother Roberta made the rules. No chewing gum, no bicycles, no tree nuts, no pets. Every morning she brewed the coffee and every night she cooked the meal. Twice a year she sewed our made-to-measure habits from yards of a black poly wool blend. She embroidered pillows, made punch from powder, wrote the homilies for the priest, when Father Thaddeus came to Lackawanna, he suggested she might take a break. Relax. She was 81, frail as filament, and had started having bad days. Lapses in memory, slips in the shower. She sometimes peed herself. Twice in one month, we'd had to rummage through bags of trash in search of her false teeth. Mother Roberta acquiesced. She would try to relax. She began to spend her days behind a newspaper held wide, or at the kitchen table with a cup of red rose tea, staring at a spread of puzzle pieces that she never seemed to touch. But while we weren't looking, she put all thousand pieces where they were meant to be, and one afternoon the puzzle was finished. 
a moonscape. She left it on the table until dinner, then wrecked it and started again. Everything we knew about living, we knew because Mother Roberta had showed us. She taught us to be busy, write our representatives, make bread of brown bananas. There is no time for nothing, she used to tell us, when she caught us staring out the window or flipping through stations on the rectory radio. Mother Roberta had three stiff hairs on her chin that we could spot only when she sat underneath the kitchen light. We used to fight each other for the chance to lean close and tug them loose. The thrill of it, we were eager and she obliged, knowing she was too blind to get them herself. One of us would crouch and raise a pair of tweezers and, when a hair was plucked free, present it in front of Mother Roberta's face so she could close her eyes, make a wish, and blow. It seemed impossible then, in the time before Little Neon and Woonsocket, to imagine chin hairs of our own. The four of us were born in different months of the same year, each of us 20 when we became novitiates, 22 when we made our vows. We were 29 when we moved from Lackawanna, just south of Buffalo, to Woonsocket. Back then, our chins were bald and our minds were sharp. Our faith was firm and founded. We were fixed to one another, like parts of some strange, asymmetrical body. Francis was the mouth, Mary Lucille the heart, Therese the legs, and I, Agatha, the eyes. There were a lot of parts missing, I suppose, but for a while we didn't realize it. For a while it seemed like enough. When I was young, I thought womanhood would bring autonomy, glamour, fur coats and fat wallets, days entirely of my design. I planned as a girl to become the kind of woman who kept a pen in her breast pocket. It seemed important that when I grew up, I always had my own pen, that I never had to borrow anything from anyone else. Now that I'm on my own, the thing I miss most is time spent in a parked van with my sisters, waiting for one of us to root through her bag and find whatever it was the other needed the most. Thank you so much for reading that. So what led you to write a novel about the, these four 29-year-old sisters religious? What, where did that idea come from? Yeah, it, um, I was raised Catholic, and at the time that I started writing about nuns, I had spent a lot of time writing about people who were very similar to me, um, people who took a lot of naps and <laughs> um, wept, you know, uh, people whose problems looked like my problems. Um, and I just got really sick of myself. And so I was eager to find a character that I felt like I had authority on, but um, one that also seemed to offer different experiences and perspectives. And the person that came to mind was Sister Therese, who taught me macroeconomics in high school. Um, and she was really stern and mean and hated me. Um, <laughs> And so I wondered what it was like to have the conviction that Sister Therese had um, and to be sure about how the world worked and what mattered. Um, and so I started writing in this first person plural perspective, um, the we voice, about um, what Sister Therese's world might have looked like when she was young. Uh, so she, so did you like do research for this? <laughs> um, a lot of the, the the stuff that I might call research was born of like having grown up Catholic. Mm -hmm. um, but I did speak to a number of women religious on the phone, including not Sister Therese, but the woman who taught my mother history in high school. Um, and she spoke for a long time about her long career as a nun um, and how she's seen the church change over time. Did you speak with any young 
Yes. Sisters? Yeah, I spoke to one woman who was in the process of um, professing vows. And our biographies overlapped in like really significant ways. Mm. So I was, um, you know, I had to like come up against a lot of um, unconscious bias when I was speaking to her um, and swallow a lot of what presented as judgment um, for making that choice. Hmm. Fascinating. So Agatha Little Neon is a belated, I would say belated coming of age novel. Mm -hmm. So why did you, what was, why was that a genre that interested you? Yeah, I mean, I think it can take as long as it takes for someone to accept themselves and, um, and learn who they are. And so I'm always interested and inspired by stories of people um, arriving at self-acceptance later in life. Um, and that's very much Agatha's experience. Um, the, you, you mentioned that you started writing it in, in first person plural, and one of your stories is in first person plural too, which is not a common uh, point of view. What made you switch to first person singular? Yeah, I think um, it was hard to sustain that perspective over the, um, the scope of a novel. Um, hard to keep that going. And I think um, ultimately Agatha kind of like announced herself to me as a character um, whose experience and um, point of view was most kind of pressing and important here. Um, when I read the bit about how all of the sisters are parts of the same body, um, it seemed natural that Agatha as the eyes um, would be the one to tell this story. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I mean, you might say that it starts out in a kind of first-person plural, and it becomes increasingly first-person singular story. Right, right. Yeah, so it's such an interesting book, such a uh, really good read. Um, you are an assistant professor at Binghamton University. So how do you, like, how do you teach creative writing? What do you do? Yeah. Um, I think that I used to think when you taught creative writing that you had to enter the classroom with all of these answers and all of these like tidy, uh, serviceable um, takeaways for students. But I think I've come to see it as um, students asking questions and I help them ask better questions um, and I ask questions too. Um, and we kind of probe the unknown together. So I, I interviewed uh, Matthew Dickman last term, who's a visiting um, writer in the creative writing program this term, and I asked him this question. He's like, I don't believe in workshops. I don't believe in writing workshops. How, what do you feel about writing workshops? I mean, this is a question you could both speak to. What, yeah, what do you I, think about writing workshops? I think when they work, they're wonderful. Um, what I, happens when they don't work? <laughs> <laughs> when they don't work, um, they can be dispiriting and overwhelming, um, but I think that's part of the process too, is learning um, what feedback to dismiss and what not to listen to when you're writing. Is that something that you help with as a teacher? Absolutely, yeah. Um, part of what I'm doing is helping students see, um, you know, who are the writers that are doing what they wanna do, um, and how can I point them in that direction rather than some, you know, other predetermined direction. So do they read a lot of other writers in your courses? Absolutely, yeah. 
I assign a range of published work. And that's fairly typical at uh, U of O, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's one of the things about our creative writing program. It, it really is a program that teaches you about the history of literature as well as the practice of writing. Yeah. Um, so you're both here as guests of the creative writing program. You're reading, but reading isn't the only thing our guests do when they're here. So tell us a little bit about what you guys are up to while you're on campus. Yeah, we just met with the current University of Oregon MFA grad students in fiction writing for lunch. And after this, we will be chatting with the undergraduate students who are part of the KID program in creative writing here. And then a reading this evening. Am I missing anything? No. Yeah. Um, this was really the highlight, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whatever you say. Um, say a little bit about um, what it was like to be with these MFA students now that you are not MFA students at the University of Oregon? Um, hmm, good question. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's hard to give writing advice because it sounds like life advice a lot of the time. Mm. Um, and no life advice, uh, you know, meeting someone and then immediately giving them life advice is just not, um, a good plan <laughs> or a cool look either. <laughs> um, but it was really great to, to meet with the students um, because it reminded me of the joy of being here um, and how inspiring a time it can be. Do you want to add anything to that, Morgan? I think that, no, I think that that sums it up. Yeah, it was a little bit strange, I think, to return to a place that I haven't been in seven years uh, and to sort of imagine myself again like at that same pizza place on the opposite <laughs> side of the table like talking to a writer who I found like intimidating um, so yeah it was a strange experience but I really enjoyed the conversation with them so um, are you each willing to say a little bit about what you're working on now since these books are obviously they've been out they're getting praise what are you what are you working on now yeah, I'm writing a novel um, set during uh, the 1970 mail strike um, when for eight days postal workers refused to deliver the mail. What what drew you to that? Um, I love the mail. Oh, <laughs> email and... <laughs> yes, I, apparently that's a theme. <laughs> Interesting. How about you, Mark? Uh, I'm working on a novel that tracks the sort of migration of a genderqueer ecologist and their sibling um, west from Northwest Florida, due to reasons of climate and politics, um, out yeah towards the West Coast, and thinking of it, drawing deliberately and very loosely on the grapes of wrath, and thinking of it as a sort of genderqueer counter narrative, and also a 21st century sort of counter narrative to that mm -hmm. um, that book of weather-driven migration. And what about the shift from short stories to novel? What does that seem like a natural transformation for you, a natural progress? It's, this is, the novel is actually, it's, it's not a direct expansion, but um, one of the stories in this book, That Drowning Place, thinks about a sort of similar movement, and I was writing that story and realized that there was a lot that I had left unexplored and that it felt like a bit of a too simple gloss of a very complex phenomenon, and so it was in part wanting to dig more into that that led me to write the novel, um, but yeah, it doesn't feel like a natural, I, I would, I'm going to be very excited to again start writing short stories. The novel <laughs> still feels like quite a difficult form for me. Okay, so we're almost out of time, so this will be my last question, a question for each of you. Is there something that you've read recently, and it doesn't have to be recently written, that you would recommend to our viewers? As some, you know, something they've got to read. Yeah, my friend Alex Tanner's book, uh, Worry, is out in March. It's 
hilarious and delightful and um, probably the best book I've ever read. I'll say it. <laughs> uh, I really recently really enjoyed Jamie Lynn's The Night Parade. Uh, yeah, I thought it was beautiful both as an object and as a, as a work of um, memoirs. So, yeah. so you, you spoke of it as an object. And let's just talk a little bit about your two objects here. Say a little bit about these covers. They're both beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, um, my journey to this cover was a long one. I initially said that I didn't want a pink book and I didn't want women on it. And <laughs> uh, now I've got <laughs> four women on a bright pink book. Um, but I'm really, really happy with how the cover turned out. Um, I, I've learned how difficult it is to communicate about images and covers um, and how to react to them with language. Um, but this is a really happy uh, result for me. Mine, this was like the first, I had very little input and this was the first image that was offered to me and I, I love it. So I feel like I got, I got lucky. I know a lot of writers <laughs> who have had very different experiences, but yeah. Well, thank you both for talking with us today. It's been a real pleasure uh, listening to you read and, and uh, reading your, your two works and having you with us. Welcome back and thanks again. Thank thanks you. so much. I've been speaking with the writers Morgan Thomas and Clara Luchetti, alumni of the Creative Writing Program at the University of Oregon. They gave readings at the U of O on January 10th, 2024, as guests of the Creative Writing Program. Thanks so much for watching.